Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello there, Taz. Hi. I'm joined, I'm Iris. I'm joined in a studio with Taz. And yeah, um, and how are you going, Taz? Uh, I've been well. It's been such a great week. Thanks in Psychodelia for the previous show. It was really good to hear about psychoactive drugs and the criminalization of those substances. Um, so first I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. Colonization and genocide continue to this day and will continue as long as settler colonialism exists. I pay my respects to any Indigenous elders listening and I pay respects to any Indigenous listeners and queer Indigenous folk and sister girls and brother boys. Um, I acknowledge as a white person I benefit from settler colonialism and must centre struggles for decolonization. So today in the show we did plan to have Chi Tran coming in but unfortunately they couldn't make it for personal reasons and we plan to interview them in a, in a future future episode but we will be we will be like broadcasting the interview we had of their work i occupy occupy space which is, which is to say i am always grieving later on in the show um yeah i think to start off with we'll be broadcasting a conversation i had um and coming out in our lives in saudi arabia with robbie ahmed whom i knew at, who i knew at school so he recently wrote an article on March 3 this year um, titled How I Learned to Handle Boundaries and Self-Worth as a Queer South Asian Torn Between Cultures on Galaxy Magazine. Um, so a brief intro on Rabi Ahmed um, as an author on Galaxy Magazine. Um, Rabi Ahmed is a South Asian trans man working as the men's sexual health coordinator at Alliance for South Asian AIDS Prevention, or ASAP, where he runs... He runs support programs for queer South Asian men. He uses his experience growing up in Russia, Saudi Arabia, Bangladesh, and Toronto to help queer South Asians reconcile their queerness and cultural identity. And in our conversation, um, which touches on a few, uh, touches on a few topics, including themes of the West's and universality, recreating marginalization and invisibility, and also living and being a queer person in our cultures and placing and places in, with contexts. Yeah. Um, I'm also going to remind everyone you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on your AM dial. And we need your support to survive. So if you want to donate, hop onto 3cr.org.au and help help keep Radical Radio um, existing. So, yeah. So we're going to play the interview you did, Taz. So you wrote about like coming to terms um, as a queer South Asian. Do you want to talk about that article? Okay. I feel like now I'm put on the spot and now I actually talk about what I wrote. Um, okay. So I think um, a lot of this article came in about like cultural differences mm-hmm. between South a- like being queer and being South Asian as well as being um living in a Western world. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the times we have very different expectations of what we should behave, but people kind of don't realize that culture plays such a significant role. Exactly. Yeah, and I feel like people from, yeah, depending on where you brought up, you face very different challenges in the way you understand relationships and the way, yeah, you behave. Uh-huh. So I, I want to... Yeah, I wanted to write an article that just talked about these differences and talked about how a lot of expectations that people have of us, like, oh, set boundaries, be independent, don't talk to your parents, let it go. Like, it's not as feasible for people who grew up in a very different culture because you're also asking them to divorce themselves from their culture. Yeah. Um, And was that well-received? Surprisingly, yes. Uh, among the people that 
shared it. Yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think a lot of folks, um, there's a group called Queer South Asians, and they, they've reposted it a few times. Uh, yeah, it seemed like it got pretty wide, widely shared, which was good. And what do you do now? You, you work with, um, the, article, the article mentioned that you work with um, queer South Asian youth. Um, do you want to talk to that a bit? Yes, so I work with Alliance for South Asian AIDS Prevention, and a lot of the work we do is around HIV prevention, but we also provide support spaces for mostly gay, bi, and trans men who like them, but that's mostly for funding reasons. Mm. But we also provide like like a safe space and meeting places for other queer South Asians. And how long has this been um, operating? So there's a long history of it. We started in 1989, I believe. So initially, uh, yeah, it it happened after a queer, after a South Asian couple passed away from AIDS. And at that time, there was no access. They couldn't access the mainstream services because of the language. So... This group started off from a garage, and then it just grew into an organization wow. so to provide like those support spaces. And how many, um, I don't know, is it how many offices or branches have, have you got operating at the moment? Believe it or not, we are a very small organization, and we have just an office in downtown Toronto. Right, and how but many, yep, sorry. How many? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you have multiple languages um, used to make sure that that information is accessible? Like... Yes, so we make sure that we translate all of our services to all the South Asian languages, and we also try to expand to um, Arabic and other, like, in, and, in, well, yeah, and to the Indo-Caribbean populations. Because right. anyone who falls under culturally similar to South Asians, mm-hmm. and we try to provide <laughs> as many, like, or, yeah. Right. Um, and you, you know, you, you are, um, do you want to talk about your experience of being a queer South Asian moving to Toronto? Because from what I understand, you're, you came in as an international student, was it right? Yes. Well, Tor- like the thing, the good thing about Toronto is you'll never feel like you're really moved anywhere new. Mm-hmm. There's not much of a culture shock because we're just like, uh, like they say Toronto is a big mosaic of different cultures. So you're just never like... You'll meet people that are just like you who are from somewhere else or have various cultural backgrounds. So it wouldn't be like too shocking, but it's nice that it's like there's a lot of diversity here. Right. And um, do you want to talk about, because you, you, you've grown up in, you've spent some time in Saudi Arabia and in Bangladesh. Do you want to talk about being a queer um uh, yeah, a trans, a trans boy, I guess, growing up in being in Saudi or being in Bangladesh and how, how that was like for you. Um, also, coming to terms with your queerness and your cultural and religious identity, do you, are, you, are you happy to talk about that? Sure, yeah. I think there's a lot of topics there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I'll start off. I think being queer in different country means very different things. And I think we forget that because we think that there is this universal idea of being queer, which is like in the Western world. You celebrate pride, you're this, you do, you dress up a certain way, you go to certain parties. But I feel like being queer in different countries looks very different. Oh, totally. Yeah. And uh, for being queer in, what do you call, in Saudi Arabia, for once, like, when I came out in Saudi, I don't think I knew I was queer. Like, there was no language around it. You're just who you are. Mm-hmm. You, you know who you like, but you don't put a label on it, or you don't think you're really different unless you talk to other people and they think you're different. Yeah, that, I mean, that's actually quite... I think also because sexuality... Because I grew, I grew up in Saudi Arabia as, as well. Um, I think because sexuality was such a taboo, like, you just... You don't really talk about it anyway. I actually thought it was more sinful. I'm just using the word sinful because it is a fundamentalist regime. Um, I thought it was more sinful to be like a straight couple than being a queer couple. Like, and did that... That's true because don't, like, you can't go to a mall with 
a person of the opposite sex because people would don't they like check your ID? They make sure that you shouldn't have like a heterosexual partner. So sometimes like yeah, you get away more with being queer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, um, I mean, gender segregation, I guess, is also quite. You know, I think a lot of public spaces are gender segregated, um, like let's say restaurants, shopping malls, um, food courts, um, banks. But like, I mean, and I suppose like that's also it's obviously quite violent for people who don't fit in those binaries. But if you're like assigned f- female at birth, like you're, and you know, um, I guess I don't know, it's it's a bit complicated. Like same sex attracted, like it's for you, it's for us, it's doesn't seem to be much of an issue, like. Um, as you said, it's like it's almost like a, a queer autonomous space sometimes. That's true. Yeah, and I I think nobody really questions you as much. Yeah. Not to say that I didn't feel like the environment was very homophobic in nature. Oh, totally. Yeah. I thought it was, but I feel like yeah, I just never discussed because it's never like a topic because there's a lot more pol- policing of heterosexuality. Yeah, I think because this, exactly because I think there's so much of policing of heterosexuality and heterosexual relationships. Like you don't you 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 start to think like maybe heterosexual people are more sinful than I am potentially until like until <laughs> you actually come out, and then people are like, oh wow, I did not expect you're even worse. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow, I don't I don't realize. Um, but yeah, I, I've I mean I'm I'm interested to know about you know. After you come out in Saudi, and when you then you know when you moved to Bangladesh, like how was it like? When did you have, did you come out of Bangladesh, and how was that navigating like career spaces there? All right, so like I did come out in Saudi, mm-hmm. that didn't go as well as it should have. Well, it was not supposed to. It was Saudi Arabia, so yeah. Um, and then I moved to Bangladesh. So since after my bad experience in Saudi from my classmates, my parents, I kind of decided to go back into the closet in Bangladesh. And I was like, oh, I'm going to start anew. I don't need to mention this part of my life to anybody ever again. (laughs) Mm. So I spent like, I think a year or two being like really in the closet and just kind of like not talking to people, never even hugging anybody. I was like, okay, I'm going to like, yeah, forget about this thing. But then um, I met somebody who was in grade 10, 11, who I became really close friends with. Two girls, actually. One was like um, Irene and another one was called Sadia. Mm-hmm. And they were starting to want to be my best friends. And they kind of wanted me to open up. And I was really weird because at that time I was like, oh, I don't really want friends. I don't need you to know me. Oh. Kind of. Um, and But eventually, like, they were like, you know what, if the worst thing has happened, what's the worst thing to happen again? And they were really open-minded and supportive. Mm-hmm. So I did come out. So I took a risk and came out to them, and both of them took it really well. So, And I was like, wow, I guess maybe not everyone is the same. Yeah, and I think like I, I had friends like you in Saudi. Oh, so. uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So you we went to school together. I think I don't know. I when I look back, I don't think we've ever pulled each other aside and said, "Hey, um, by the way, I like this per like." You know, I don't think. I mean, we we did tell some. We tell we did tell each other. Oh, we like this girl, or I like that. I fancy this person, but we never officially said anything like, "Oh, I think I'm trans. I think I'm, uh, have gender like body dysphoria or something." Like we've never said anything like that to each other. We've just. Yeah, I feel like it was understood without language because we were so similar because we both felt the same way about the clothes we wore, felt the same way about the people we like, that it didn't seem different. Exactly. Because I was like, well, my my friend feels the same way, so it's normal. Like... Yeah, and we just had similar interests. I mean, I'm just really fascinated because, like, I think that... um, I didn't even think that it was sinful. So I come from a religious family, and the thought of being queer, I mean, I, I don't, we didn't really have the language to say that, you know, I'm queer, but for me to fancy other women, I mean, I just thought it wasn't spoken about, but that didn't mean that it was wrong, right? Because there's a lot of things people don't talk about, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, it was just something that you can say was private. Um, so it was only until, I can still remember it, it was when um, I think same-sex marriage became a public debate um, in the United States and it creeped it into a lot of the religious 
uh, preachers in Saudi Arabia, the people started talking about it more publicly. I think that's when I started having troubles with um, being queer Muslim. And I think at that point you also moved back to Bangladesh. So I actually didn't, I actually didn't have anyone to relate to or anyone to express how I felt. Um, and it's very hard. Like I, I think being in the closet, I mean, I can, I guess can be like for survival and protection, but also at the same time, it's really suffocating. You know, you want to have someone to talk to or, um, I, I felt like I didn't have that for a few years and that was pretty tough. Um, well, did you find the same? Yeah, especially during this. Sorry? My, yeah, my experience around it was, you know, funny thing is that, like, I feel like my sexuality was never as big of a deal to me as my gender was. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like sexuality is something I had a choice, not the gender I had no choice because it was in my face every time I talked to somebody, every time I looked in the mirror, it was just something that was so much more of a concern to me. Mm-hmm. So when it came to like liking somebody, I never thought it was wrong because, yeah, because I was like, oh, okay. Um, like, yeah, my gender came way before, like as a concern. Mm. And I, I think that bothered me more than my sexuality. Right. I mean, I, I yeah, that's, I mean, that's true. Like, I think it was also easier to hide your sexuality, I suppose. Um, but like when I look at all the, my old photos and I looked at the way, how I dressed, I've always been pretty transmasculine, right? Like it's, I just, I was just more comfortable with presenting myself in a certain way. Like I would rebel against wearing a dress and my family actually tailor made a suit and a tuxedo and I've got little photos of that and made me little shirts and pants ever since I was little. And now that I'm, like, older, like, in my mid-twenties, I just find it so fascinating. I go back to Sri Lanka, and people are just, like, they expect me to just, great, get, you know, to one day just grow out of that phase. And, I, and I've just never, I've just never, um, uh, I don't know, just gone, grown out of it. Like, it's just been always with me. Like, cutting my hair short and wearing pants and shirts. And um, that because that was my idea. of That's how I presented myself. That's how I identified um. Yeah, but to me, I felt like gender was so much more policed than my sexuality. Exactly. And to be fair, it was with my parents. I think my parents played a significant role in why my gender was way more scarier than my sexuality. Because um, I was very open about who I liked. I think I back from the time I've met, like in grade six, that my first crush. I think I told everybody I liked them. I was like, you know what? This is who I like. And nobody really had that big of a problem with it. Totally. Um, like yeah, I, my mom didn't care. My Yeah, my mom was like, it's okay. My dad was like, that's fine. But the moment I said I wanted to transition, and that's when everybody started to freak out because they thought that it's okay to have this homoerotic, lesbianish relationships. Mm-hmm. They didn't really think that was as big like, they thought it's natural with friends to be close or to be yeah. fascinated by somebody of the same, se- like, gender. But they thought that the moment you transition, you start to go into this really, like, creepy area of mm. queerness to them. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's confronting. Um, you know, it's it's something you can't necessarily hide. You, they don't really know how to explain it. And, the way, I mean, I, I, I think of it like this. Like, it was... You know, the fact that it took me a while to come to terms with a lot of things and get comfortable. Like, I'm actually in a really comfortable place, spiritually, culturally, uh, in, every, in every facet. Like, it's just, it's not, I don't have any qualms about it at all. Um, but I just feel like that ju- that journey needs to be taken by my family, like, sometimes. Like, I mean, that journey's not easy. But to begin with, I think someone has to be willing to go through that emotional and mental um, journey. Like, revisiting what it means to be you know, what these binaries mean and um, social norms, I think is, I think, pretty powerful. True. But I think what helped me really, like, reconcile is that a lot of the support systems in my life that I have are from queer South Asian folks. Mm. And that's why I think it always never feels like, oh, I shouldn't be queer in my own culture. I don't feel that disconnect. I feel like it's, 
there's obviously cultural pressures from majority, but I don't feel like queerness does not exist in my culture because I go like, hey, I'm every day at ASAP and I see so many people that are so supportive and South Asian. I, I have friends here, you. Like, I feel like all my life I've always been surrounded by queerness in my community that I never felt like, oh, it's not... It's like how people say, oh, it's a Western thing. It's not a South Asian thing. Exactly. And also, like, I think queer histories, um, um, I guess you can say people of color in general, but, like, just in, I, we just don't have that exposure or that's something that doesn't get um, visited a lot in our readings of history and culture. Um, and also, I think for me, I I think because I grew up in a mixed background, like my mom, my mom's Filipino, my dad's Sri Lankan, I think it was a bit difficult with channeling my cultural background and the queerness in that culture as well because we were also expatriates and on top of that our family was overseas we didn't really it was a bit hard for me and and being in Saudi Arabia itself a lot of things that are already like censored um so my outlet was actually going through with queer muslim people um going through meeting queer muslims actually in the Islamic society at my campus for example uh, that that was for me the beginning of like um reconciliation for me um like i guess healing the damage that has already been done when i was at school yeah did did you but there's, uh, sorry um but we actually had a event at asap which was called queer kama sutra and we brought this professor dr sudarsha dariepa and he studies a lot of um history especially among South Asians. And as he was talking, a lot of like points that he brought up is that colonization really has erased queerness out of text. Because if you think about it, Kama Sutra was pretty queer. Mm-hmm. They had a whole section on like same sex sex. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like it's been around. It just gets really erased. And if you think about a third gender uh, maybe it's different from Sri Lanka, but like in Bangladesh, third gender is recognized. So queerness has never been away from our cultures. It has just been maybe looked down upon mm-hmm. or not talked about, but it has always been there and you couldn't deny it. Exactly. I think it's just one of those things that, um, I don't know, I just feel like, uh, I have so many feels about this. I also feel like it's like the you know, fundamentalist and nationalist narratives. Um, you know, the, they want to control the narratives so hard, so much that, you know, you know, when you try too hard, it's sometimes it's a bit obvious that there's something missing and you obviously want to look for, you know, what that, what that missing piece is. Um, but I agree it's harder, especially with Muslim um, communities, because here in Toronto, I find that we have a lot of queer Muslim organizations because mm-hmm. I feel like queer Muslims have a harder time to reconcile mm-hmm. because the religion is way more is prides itself in being authentic and never changing mm-hmm. and that's why reconciliation I feel becomes much harder exactly like I think oh I have a lot of thoughts on that like um I mean it's really liberating to look at queer history through culture and religion, um, honestly, right? Um, like, and I'm just speaking as a queer Muslim here, like, if you look at, you know, I guess, Islamic history, and just acknowledging its imperial past, um, just examining and accepting, you know, you know, the queer aspects of it, um, you know, I think it's, and I think being honest about history is also really important. Um, you know, because at the moment, I just feel like there's this huge control on who who controls the discourse on on Islam. Like you have government led initiatives, and then you have all yeah fundamentalist, um, you know, preachers, and you know, there's there's just too much of hands involved. Like people can't really form. I I feel it's really difficult to form an organic connection, and just trying to get people just want to have an honest. Um, evaluation understanding of history and you know and understanding the social puzzle so i think that's something that you know i can think where muslims need to have um assistance on and also like the positions they're in currently it's pretty tough being queer probably racialized 
Um, so yeah, that, that's like many things that they've got to focus on. That's true, and I totally agree that what portrayal of Islam by officials is very different from the actual Muslim people mm-hmm. that you meet. Totally, and it's it's always obviously very varied. Um, I went back to Sri Lanka actually a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and I don't know. In some ways, it was like unofficially like the trip where I actually sort of came out to my family and I think I think it's kind of unsaid I think a lot of, I know I've asked my cousins I'm like do you think my family our family thinks that I am queer and then they just they were just like well you look I mean you look pretty gay like it's kind of it's not it's not really hard to to imagine that I would probably be be a queer person you know coming from Melbourne visiting Austra- visiting Sri Lanka and I don't know. I mean, it was actually really nice. Like, you know, I I came from a place in my life where I was terrified to even tell my own sister, my own siblings, that I was queer. And now it's like I just talk, talk, talk about it with my cousins. Um, I don't, I'm not afraid to, sh- you know, show my hair. And then, so they know how I present myself. It's never changed. And I think my family, in some ways, have sort of warmed up to it because it's been with me for such a long time. Even though there is these social expectations that I should be, like, more... I guess, womanly and more feminine in the way I present myself. But I guess it's always like a special case for me. Um, I just wanted to share this like really short and um, snippet of what happened in Sri Lanka. Um, so you know how, you know, when you're like in your mid-20s and then family's all like when you're going to get married and, you know, the whole jing bang. And I remember I was in the, I was in this car and we were driving off and I was with my auntie, you know, some of my older cousins, um, and they were sort of like, I think partly like teasing me, being like, oh, it's high time you got married. And I sort of got really annoyed. I was like, well, you know, they keep on bringing this marriage thing up, so I'm going to flip it. And I was like, well, if you really want me to get married, why can't you find me a girl? And the entire car just like burst out laughing. Like they took it so well. They took the cold joke so well. So I think there's, I think there's deep down, there is that sense of like, Tez is probably queer, but we're not going to confront or say anything about it. So I think when I make a in my Italian like that, it's just like it just reassures that yeah, Taz is queer, but we don't really have to discuss that further. So it's I guess in some ways like I guess in in an interesting way it's sort of like a form of acceptance that they've just been so I don't know, like I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't I've I'm not obviously said it in like in a Western way, like being like sit everyone down and say like, Oh, by the way, I'm queer and this is this is what I feel like and you know, I don't have to do all that explanation. I think I think people in our culture sort of give you that privacy and a sort of. I think. Did you did you do you think that's similar to how you felt? I definitely agree that people rather say like, if you're queer, just don't talk about it, and it's like silently acknowledged and swept under the carpet. But I think, and. Um, in Bangladesh, like I found Bangladesh, not that I'm trying to say Bangladesh is queer positive, but my gender is not least in Bangladesh. Because I thought people just didn't really care what I wore. Like there would occasional, oh, when are you getting married? Or occasional, like, oh my God, what are you wearing? Actually, I found that I got more positive feedback for what I was wearing because there's a lot more slut shaming happening in Bangladesh than there is, I feel like gender policing so to i always got the comments oh look robbie is actually wearing decent clothes they're so baggy even though i'm like wearing like baggy jeans right like and tra- yeah <laughs> this other- so yeah people will- totally I, I feel like there's also these there's so many layers of um i guess i mean there's so many layers involved right because you you know in one aspect you could sort of say it's patriarchal like it's more acceptable to be mask masculine presenting whereas if you were you know there's a lot of femme phobia you know like if i if i for example if i imagine my sister being who is more uh feminine and she would get more policed with her clothes whereas i sort of get away with it a little bit more like i would still get a comment but it i would definitely not be getting slut shamey kinds of comments though um yeah and i found that people got more policed for slut like for inappropriate clothing versus to me people were like oh look robbie doesn't have a boyfriend robbie is wearing all these decent clothes and i'm like i'm burning in hell anyway and you're if you knew <laughs> like, 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I just find it interesting because, like, I, I sort of feel like throughout high school, even though I was tormented by a lot of the narratives that I was hearing, you know, because, you know, like I said, my parents are quite religious and a lot of the stuff I was hearing on TV and lectures was, you know, was absolutely tormenting. Um, but I also felt like the fact that I was more masculine than pre presenting and, you know, obviously I don't, I guess the way how I... Um, how I feel with my body is just a bit different. So, you know, I obviously wear baggier clothes. Um, and it just happened to work out fine. Like, I didn't really, I didn't really show an interest in the boys, even though, like, I would, we would hang out, like, play video games and stuff. So, I guess in some ways it's afforded me some protection. But in a lot of ways, it's still been, it's been, it's, it's been tough, I guess, in a different way for me. That's true. But I also find the same with, like, um, can't speak for what it's like being male assigned at birth and queer in Bangladesh. But I also found that men held each other's hands more often on the street. Like platonic relationships between men were more accepted in Bangladesh. It's very common to see two guys holding hands. Okay. And you don't go like, oh, they're gay. Like you're just like, no, they're just friends. Totally, but I I not it's I mean I haven't I guess I haven't really like as you've lived in Bangladesh, whereas I I, in the context of Sri Lankan Philippines, I've largely been part of the diaspora. Um, I've never actually lived there. I go back still with a strong element of still being a tourist um, with where I go, how long I stay there, where um, and who I know and how I work with. Um, I also think like also in Saudi as well, I think it was a lot more normal for, I'm not, I guess normal is a loaded word, but maybe it was a lot more acceptable socially acceptable to have women holding hands, um, men sort of give, giving kisses while they give salam. So it was a little bit more, it was more accepted in some ways, like to show to show affection to the same, um, I guess, to the same sex. And I find it fascinating that in Australia here, uh, even though... It's not. Yeah, I, even though they've got all these leaflets and there's these programs and like and it's really and it's and it's good. Like I I don't, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't um, criticize that, but I just find it interesting that despite all this work that's put in socially, it's it, there's still that you know that weird feeling like oh why why are they too close or why are they too um, you know like. But do you ever find that's because um, Western media tends to over-sexualize everything? So platonic affection or any sort of physical affection kind of gets viewed as sexualized. But I don't know, That might that's just I, I mean that, maybe like... I mean, that's pro uh, well, probably, yeah. Um, versus, like, yeah... Like, I think maybe, as you said, yeah, it's probably that panic being like, oh, what if people sexualize me? And it, I think I think that's, and you know how we were saying that in our cultures, there's, there's a little bit more taboos, a little bit more, they afford you a little bit more privacy. And I don't know, maybe maybe that aspect might link into it. The fact that we don't really talk about it anyway. So so, so there's no real fear. Like, I don't know, it's interesting because like you, you, you're terrified in some ways to come out. But at the same time, you're like, well, I can sort of get away with this, you know small acts of affection um, without being called out and for being queer. Um, is that something you found um, true when you lived in Bangladesh? Yes, because at that time, I... Yeah, no, I... I think I liked somebody... Well, not openly, but I was in relationship when I was in Bangladesh, and I think a lot of it just went under the cracks because it was just counted as a platonic relation. Like, it, it wasn't policed. Mm -hmm. And therefore, nobody really cared. And like, how Unless, you... of course, you displayed public display of affection that, of course, people would notice, but I don't... Yeah, as long as you're careful and then people are like, oh, they're just friends, and it just... Nobody really polices it, and... Exactly. And I, you know what, I'm actually really interested in how, you know, in a home, in, in intensely homophobic external environments, um, you know, how do, I just always wonder, how do people navigate that, right? Because let's say in Saudi, like obviously you and I, have been, it's a bit of a cheat because like obviously we went to school together, it, was, it wasn't too hard. And then we've, I've, I know I have a couple of 
other, actually I've got three other, three or four other queer friends that are from school, which I only came to know a little bit later on. Like I feel, and I feel really unfortunate. I'm a bit, I'm a bit disappointed. I wish I knew, and I wish people were more open about their queerness, so that you know, life would be a lot more easier. Well, it would be a lot easier, you know, just having that few queer friends around, um, you know, making you feel valid. That's true. But to me, I was like, maybe it's a good thing that at that time we didn't have language. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I think it, it's always nice to look back and go like, oh, my God, there were so many queer people around me who came out much later on. But I feel like it's a good thing that at that time in Saudi Arabia, we haven't mm-hmm. found each other with that language. Because I feel like the moment you start to reclaim a language, you suddenly start becoming dangerous to people. Because once you don't have a label, nobody can pinpoint you because to them your gender sexuality is fluid and can still change and you're kind of safer but the moment you claim a label you're claiming something forever and i found that if we at that time came out and claimed a certain label or as queer folks i feel like it'd be way more threatening in saudi arabia than it would have if we just were who we are, we saw each other, we acknowledged each other, but we never put a label on our own identities at that time. Yeah. Not that saying that putting a label is a bad or good thing. It's just more like sometimes the moment you claim something out loud, because like I told people I liked somebody, but the moment I said I was trans and that's what, who I was, that's when it became threatening. Right, okay. Because like, I... I mean, for a long time, even when I, you know, moved, left school and I went into uni, even for a few years, like I, I, I was not fully comfortable with saying that uh, I'm lesbian or I'm trans or, like I, I, I mean, I guess I'm. In one part, it was like I'm not, I'm not really too sure what these words mean, but also, I, you just don't grow up hearing those words, and so at the same time, you don't, I don't feel like associating myself with those words as well. Um, so I think that, that, that's something I've kind of grown accustomed to over time. That's because a lot of the people I happen to be, um, around with use those words queer. I'm like, yeah, okay. Like I, I can, I can get behind that. Like, you know, a a loose term. I don't, I don't like something very definitive, um, because that's just not how I've grown up. Like I've not grown up with such strong definitions of gender and sexuality, actually, interestingly, even though we were in Saudi. Um, so I just don't feel comfortable putting labels on that as well. Yeah. And I felt like, yeah, it's like, as far as I know, like in Saudi, I've I've met families and people and friends who were queer. Now that I look back at it, but at that time, didn't say we were queer. You just liked who you liked. Exactly. And, yeah. But you expressed your gender the way you expressed your gender. Exactly. And sometimes, like, I just wish people didn't need to put labels on that and that it was not... You know, like I think I don't know. Like I, like these days, I don't, I don't. I try not to make. Like I'm kind of glad I don't come out in the way like a lot of um, Western media portrays coming out as. Um, you know, I just like to do this really casually. I just do it by behavior. I just, I just um, mention it over. I guess uh, maybe something briefly mentioned in a conversation, but never actually having like an event or an actual sit down or anything about it. Um, I don't know, because I just feel like it it sort of reinforces this idea that there's something different about you. And I, yeah, there is a difference, but I don't think that it, that necessarily needs um, this huge amount of attention to it. Like, uh, what, do, what do you think about that? I agree with you that, yeah, why do we have to come out? Why can't we just, yeah, it's like if, if, queerness was normalized nobody would have to come out exactly and and it's just taxing like for me to organize a time and place and think about the other person's emotional place and then for me to approach them then and i'm just like why would i have to do that why can't i just mention it whenever if it's relevant and if i can suss out the situation and think that well maybe this is not a place to mention that i i just work with it like i just navigate i think we i think maybe we grow so so well accustomed to knowing what to say and what not to say. I think that's also part of, I don't know, I don't know maybe it's culture as well, analyzing our... But, yeah. yeah, but sometimes I find myself coming out on purpose a lot. And I know, like, sometimes I do it in a very, like, tag, 
techie way, such as like, hi, my name is Robbie and I'm trans. Like, and, and I don't do it because I want people to like, hey, put a spotlight on me. I am trans. I find it, I do it for protection of myself because if I come out as trans and I tell you who I like, you won't make assumptions about me and you wouldn't treat me a certain way. Because if I don't preface myself as trans, you will make assumptions that A, I am like a bunch lesbian or, and I'm trying to like specify that use the right pronouns on me and I'm trying to make people aware of where I am and eradicates don't want to hang out with from the beginning so that's why sometimes i do it very like upfront at the beginning totally. and come out just so that i kind of yeah like i mean i i mentioned it now too i think for very similar reasons i think it's also about putting boundaries like this is um i think people sort of loosely like i mean they don't i, I hopefully don't they don't definitely um view this because uh, I, I mean i'm not too i guess it depends on who uses the pronouns like obviously it's someone who's for example new new to learning english i wouldn't be too harsh with the pronoun issue um but yeah i mean i do it i suppose as for some reason i think as protection or as a boundary so that people understand and um and just leave it at that i guess that's true no i feel like it's okay to let People like pronouns live. Like I don't hold it against people who I meet as an acquaintance, or casually, or anything. Oh, people who don't know me, right? Yeah, exactly. It's also less. Uh, yeah, I guess there's less questions that come out of it as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. To just ignore it. Yeah, exactly. At that point. You're listening to Three CR Radio. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. This is Peter Basecamp. Welcome to the Little Red Tulangi Treehouse. As you said, I'm going to the East West Tunnel kick it, as it usually does start at 5.30am. The Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. The police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning. And I think for Australians... In order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture. We need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377 now. Hello, listeners. You're tuned into Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Iris and I'm in the studio with Taz. Thanks for that interview, Taz. Thank you. It was a pleasure um, doing that. Yeah. It's good to hear f- from Robbie from the Alliance for South Asian AIDS Prevention. And it was very generous to share so much of your life on, in that interview as well. I thought it was a really good interview. Yeah, oh, thank you. Like, I think it's really important because obviously that ex- disclosure is important because there was a lot of converse- the conversation involved a lot of references to our past together and being you know a support a support to each other so mm, yeah so unfortunately like i mentioned earlier that i might we might be playing a, a recording from the chi chan launch of occupy space which is to say i'm always grieving but we won't be doing that today um instead i'm going to um, reads from an article in Vice, which which profiles Star Amasu, who is a black trans woman who came over to um, Melbourne and Australia um, recently for trans genre. Trans genre brought her over, and she and she and she appeared in Vice a few days ago and had some like pointed things to say about what things are like. Um, And this is a quote from Staramosu. In Australia, it felt like the audience was more like get on stage, sing, get off stage. They wanted to absorb the music, but I didn't feel that warm of a reception from them. I've had the most weird and intense racist things happen to me in Australia. And I know I'm not the only artist who's had some really fucked up 
um, shit happen to them here. Even within the small queer community, it felt like people didn't realize Australians have a lot of privileges. Um, Americans don't. I know America is the center for a, lot, for a lot of culture, but a lot of artists are struggling and it's a huge deal for me even to get this far. I'm the only person in my family to ever come to Australia. I'm the only trans woman I know in my community to come here and perform. I'm one of the only trans women I know to have been able to create music in the way that I am. People are really happy to consume my media, but I feel the society here is still in this weird place where they're not accepting me as a person, but just as my content. Um, then dot 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 further on here in Australia. Everything is on the computer and I don't hear a lot about protests happening like they like they do where I live in Oakland. We are protesting all the time. People are on, getting on the, in the streets, we block highways and we make a statement with our activism in an upfront and in-your-face kind of way. You can say a lot online, but how are you going to treat the black person that's right in front of you? I don't want to critique too harshly, as I have met a lot of great and amazing people here, but I noticed immediately people really didn't give a um, F word that they might want to get me... Um, that, that they they just want to get me on stage and leave. So yeah, that was Starmus Sue, who I like saw perform most recently the other Thursday night at the Post Office Hotel, and her performance was pretty amazing. Um, and I thought I'd play a track from her next called Clonopin. Yes, you're tuning into 3CR 855 AM on your AM dial, streaming live on 3cr.org.au and on digital radio and also podcasted. This is Queer in the Air and you can find our podcast on 3cr.org.au slash Queer in the Air. Um, and the track you just heard was from Amar Asu called Clonopin. And we're going to hear from Taz and I'm Iris and we're going to hear from Taz about the article yeah. that yeah, so yeah. we played a, a conversation I had with Robbie, who wrote the article, um, How I Learned to Handle Boundaries and Found Self-Worth as a Queer South Asian Torn Between Cultures. Um, so I might read a few snippets of that. I have to be honest. Although I teach healthy relationships to queer South Asians in Toronto for a living, learning about boundaries and effective communication was a long and tedious journey for me. I always had a history of friends telling me that I was way more tolerant of unacceptable behaviors than the average person. For the longest time, I thought that maybe it was just a part of my personality. I do smile a lot and generally have a very happy-go-lucky demeanor. However, it seems it seemed to me like most people had this missing puzzle piece that I didn't. I had more books on self-help than can be found on a therapist bookshelf, and yet I always I always felt that there might have been a deeper, more ingrained reason behind my understanding of relationships and communication in relation to the context of the queer Western world, till one day it all dawned upon me. I'm going to skip through the next section of the article, which is about the sense of boundaries. Growing up in a house full of four, full of four children and an extended family, personal space and boundaries were not formally defined for me. It was natural to have my father or mother to barge into my room at 6 a.m. in the morning, telling me to wake up or come downstairs to eat food. If I ever dared to disagree or say no, I was being disrespectful to my elders, or could leave the house, as they would say. From a young age, I was told to be polite, smile, serve tea to guests, be a good student, recite religious scriptures from the top of my head, and to never speak back. I was taught to let my parents and society decide what is right for me. I learned to accept nosy and offensive questions from family members such as, how did you gain weight? How did you get so dark? When are you getting married? With a polite smile and silence. Saying no to family members who would forcefully put extra food on my plate was already difficult, so, so dodging these questions was even harder. However, now when I find myself in Canada's queer scenes, I was not sure how to handle invasive questions. At times I was asked questions like, what is in your pants? How do you have sex? Or the most bizarre one, one yet. Tell me about your history of abuse being a trans person of color. No matter how annoying these questions were, I avoided them with the same polite smile I have learned all these years to avoid conflict. 
um, I'm just going to skip to uh, a snippet here. Um, with the lack of conversation around dating or sex in our cultures, I find myself not being able to distinguish between health, healthy and unhealthy relationships. And I'll be moving on to this um, section of culture of silence, which is also part of the article. It took a while for me to learn to reach out to others, and at times I still struggle. However, through incremental disclosure, I learned that these topics could be talked about in safe and confidential spaces with trusted friends, without the fear of being judged or looked down upon. In fact, often reaching out to the right people can bring us closer to them, reduce the shame, and help to get a different perspective on situations. Reaching out can also reduce the stigma and the taboo around these subjects and help other others see that they are not the only ones in dealing with their struggles. Um, I'm moving on to the next section, which is called on communication. Um, communication was a major barrier for me in relationships. Even when commuting, communicating with other culturally similar queer minorities, to illustrate this example, my last relationship ended partially over miscommunication over who paid the bill. Every time I asked them if they wanted to cover the bill, they would politely decline. However, in reality, they wanted me to ask them three times before they would agree, as commonly practiced in our cultures. By then, living five years in Canada taught me that splitting the bill was acceptable if asked once. There was a severe culture, cultural gap between us, despite our good intentions and similar cultural backgrounds. South Asian cultures are high context. In other words, our meaning is implied and indirectly stated. Unlike Western cultures, which are low context, where direct, frank communication is more widely practiced. This problem accentuates in South Asian queer communities when it comes to negotiating sex. Indirect communication makes consent trickier to determine. A reluctant yes is read as an overt yes. A negotiation over willingness to use condoms or participate in certain sexual activities becomes overpowered by someone with a more direct communication style. Some of these situations end in disastrous consequences. I think those were some of the snippets I've shared from the article. Um, so that was the article that Robbie um, wrote on Gay Lexi magazine titled How I Learned to Handle Boundaries and Found Self-Worth as a Queer South Asian Torn Between Cultures. Um, do encourage our listeners to have a read of that article. Yeah, thanks. You, thank you, Taz, for reading the article. Unfortunately, we won't have any time really to talk about it. So we're running out of time today on Karenia, and you have been listening to myself, Iris, and Taz, and you can tune in next week from 3 to 4 p.m. for another episode of Karenia, and you can find us, many of our episodes podcasted on the 3CR website as well and stay tuned for Hip Sister, Hip Sister Hop that's coming up next and we're going to go out and play some Tracy Chapman talking about a revolution bye listeners so, bye. you've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au